0: Today, we profile a podcast that was selected by Apple as one of the top shows in all of Apple Podcasts for 2018, but that level of success is not why I wanted to talk to the host. I wanted to deconstruct this show because here's an example of a podcast that could have succumbed to the same exact issue, and I think the biggest issue, facing most marketers when we go to launch our podcasts. The temptation is to launch an interview show, talking to influential people, important, well-known, inspiring, smart, expert folks. I often joke that you might as well name most branded shows the same title, Talking Topics with Experts. It's like we get stuck on that one concept. Whenever we think about doing something more, I think our brains start pushing back in the same way. We think, oh, well, I don't have the budget to do that big NPR style, the highly produced narrative style show. Or maybe we think that we just don't want to do something kitsch or gimmicky to make it more entertaining. Our audience wants really smart conversations with really smart people. Or perhaps the third thing we think is, hey, I only have so much time here. I'm not running this show full time at my business, so I only have so much time for post-production. So we have to do interviews. Now, let's just put aside this very true fact that interviews are not a shortcut. They're not a time saver. Getting great at interviewing is something that experts and amazing people like Terry Gross, Bill Simmons, Howard Stern, Larry King, Kara Swisher, these people spend their entire lives trying to master that craft. Doing an interview show is not a shortcut. It's not a time saver. So put that huge thing aside just for a moment. And I'd say this, you can still have a great show concept and a great episode format while doing an interview show. You don't need more budget or time to do lots and lots of rigorous editing or involve lots of layers of things. When your show has a great concept, affecting the entirety of your program, that affects what you will ask your guests. You want to extract certain types of moments or certain content because you have an angle or a conceit about what you explore. And if the show concept informs what you ask, the episode format involves when you ask it. In other words, when you have a format in mind, it affects your flow, your conversation, the order in which things appear. You can do all of this production on the fly, in the moment, while you're interviewing somebody else. It's not about budget. So with apologies to Capital One, being a great podcaster is not about what's in your wallet. It's way more about what's between your ears. The show we profile today is the perfect example of what could have been yet another interview show with yet another parade of the same guests you've heard before. So how do we differentiate? Today, we talk about doing exactly that without layering on a ton of post-production. We talk about building rapport, especially when a guest seems to be a bigger name than you are and maybe you're a little bit nervous. We talk about the subtle art of interrupting. And at one point, The host we talked to today actually goes into his email inbox and pulls out the cold outreach email that he used to book one of the world's most coveted guests, Judy freaking Bloom. This is Three Clips. Welcome to Three Clips. I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is the official podcast of marketing showrunners. MSR is a media company that covers and advances this huge movement of brands who are making shows. If you're a marketer and you make a podcast or a video show, we're building Marketingshowrunners.com for you. Subscribe to join thousands of marketers from brands like Red Bull, Roku, Adobe, Salesforce, Shopify, MailChimp, the BBC, Amazon Prime, and a lot more. That's Marketingshowrunners.com slash subscribe. Okay, today we are talking to Neil Pasricha. Neil is a best-selling author, like literally. He's sold millions of copies of his books, and uh, he's not somebody who just put in their Twitter bio, best-selling author to sound impressive. He's literally a globally best-selling author, globally turned keynote speaker, and Neil hosts three books. Three books, in a simple but brilliant twist on the average interview show with an influential person, three books looks at the three most transformative books in a person's life. So when you talk to Seth Godin, instead of just hearing his normal interview, he's going to describe those three books. Neil is really on a quest to find the 1,000 most transformative books in the world. Now, Neil's done many great things. I mentioned all the books he's sold, the speeches he gives. He's given a couple of TED Talks. That's TED without the X. TED Talks. And he generally is not shy about being on camera or on a microphone. But this is the first time he's behind the microphone as a host. This one is so good. Let's get into it. It's Neil Pasricha from Three Books.
1: No one knows how to pick a book. Like it's the it's the hardest (laughs) hardest thing to do in the world. There's 200 million books on Amazon. A new million books comes out every year, and so everyone just picks what's in a pile at the airport, you know. And so I'm on a quest to uncover and discuss the 1,000 most formative books in the world three books at a time. To do that, I'm flying around the world, literally, to sit down with 333 of the world's most inspiring people and ask each of them which three books most shaped their lives.
0: I think it's easy to describe what your show is. But what I'm curious about is before your show exists in the classic show running style, you used to have to pitch it to a Hollywood executive and many people still do to Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. So the show is called Three Books pitch it to me Hollywood style it's that classic like it's like x meets y or it's like show one meets show two meets show three like if you had to pitch it that way how would you actually pitch it and what were those why why those things too
1: the show has the vulnerability of a Howard Stern interview combined with the Nugget-like insights and tools of a Tim Ferriss show podcast, sprinkled with, you know, some some nerd sprinkles on top, where people who organize their books in the Dewey Decimal System or can geek out about a book no one else has ever heard of, you know, get to get their jollies out, kind of through that conversation.
0: I love that. That was so great, and I do remember listening to your show. Every time I hear it, I always smile, even though I don't quite understand it. You tell people after you describe their first book, for example, of the three, you're like, "All right, here's the book. Here's what it's about. File this away under this in the Dewey Decimal System." And I always, I always smile at that.
1: <laughs> well, the Dewey Decimal System is like the most underappreciated thing in like the books. You know, Jay, you walk into a library, and the whole library is organized for you under this, the the like the guidance of this guy who died a long time ago named melvin Dewey, he was like he was like Mendeleev for the periodic table he was like this is where everything's going to go you know we're going to have like you know 300 are going to be about psychology 400 is going to include sports like 500 is going to include and it was it was every single book just goes into smaller and smaller and smaller files so I, I've organized my own personal home bookshelf that way. And I like to give the Dewey Decimal Aficionados up there a little shadow on where the books should be filed. By the way, that also serves the librarian listening population well.
0: Right, right. And you do mention that it's for in part librarians and other book lovers and creators, writers, sellers. I love the way you understand who the audience is and what the show is for. The other thing I love that you do is you're really good at packaging it as, yes, it's now a serialized thing, right? So obviously there's a series to it, but there's now like there's number over the top, which is you're on the hunt for the 1000 most formative books in the world. It's okay if you can't share this yet, because you have something planned. I, I'm not great at math. I was an English major. But if you count out the number of guests you plan on having, and then you multiply those guests by three, you actually fall one book shy <laughs> of the 1000. So are we getting yeah. some kind of special final book? Or what? How, do you, how are you going to get a 1000?
1: Well, this is so fun that you asked this question because, first of all, I want to just point out to all your listeners, like, we are alive for a 1,000 months. People don't realize that. The average person is literally alive for 1,000 months. That's the average lifespan. And if you want to talk about how that number can kind of feel important on a daily basis, the average person is also awake for a 1,000 minutes. That's how much you're awake every day. So I, I think this number 1,000 has a lot of frequency through our lives that we don't really see. My first blog was called a thousandawesomethings.com. Partly why I organized this blog, this podcast as a thousand, is because I love the idea that it's finite. You know, I I don't want, I don't like podcasts or blogs or newspapers, magazines. Everything is infinite. Nothing has an end date or an end point. You know, no TV TV shows just go till they're canceled, generally, you know? So I wanted to, I think by keeping something finite, you, Force yourself to be more quality conscious and quality oriented because you're always like, I have less and less space to put this in. And as for the number one that sticks out, um, I am actually gestating on a couple of different ways to make that pop, that final book. But um, one of them – I'll just share one idea. I don't know if I'm going to do this. Sure. Is – okay, so we'll have 999 books, right? And this, by the way, doesn't – the show doesn't end until September 1st, 5.52 a.m. 2031. Right? So it's it's going to take a long time to get there. But by the end we will have so many books have been, will have been repeated um because I already have I don't let people repeat books but if they choose like, oh, I want The Fountainhead." Like literally Chip Chip Wilson's like, "I want The Fountainhead." See, you know, founder of Lululemon. Lemon. I was like, "Sorry, Chip, you know, Tim Urban of waitbutwhy.com picked The Fountainhead." He's like, "Oh, darn." You know, but then I thought it was I thought I was done with it. Then Mark Manson's like, "How about The Fountainhead?" I'm like, "Well, I just I just gave that to tim urban and then adam grant no joke was like how about the fountainhead like literally everyone <laughs> i'm like what is up with all these like white dudes picking the fountainhead um so <laughs> now it wasn't to say that they are all like hardcore you know objectivists you know they just more it, the book was formative to them at one point but anyway i was thinking about by the end maybe i have everyone who's listening to the show at the time vote or somehow input onto the single most formative book in the world, whether that is done through some sort of a crowdsource, some algorithm, some new like chip we all have in our necks by the year 2031. I don't know. <laughs> oh god. You know, but like there's some sort of uni- some amazing contest or way to sort of ultimately declare a book to be the ultimate most formative book of all time. And I thought that that could also serve as an incredible media hook to get attention and PR on the concept that we just tape. By the way guys like did we spend 13 years counting these down till right now
0: right right so you you and I you and I talked excitedly like we are right now uh, before you launched the show you called me up we talked about podcasting because I've just been immersed in it and you know I, I so appreciated you coming on my show early before I had much proof and we we talked about I don't know if you remember but we talked about this concept of an open loop. Which is basically, you know, you start a story. A very crude open loop is a clickbait headline. That's an abuse of an open loop. But an open loop is just a tease. It's something that raises your anticipation to finish what was going on, to get the answer to a question or whatever, and it's left open ended until a later point. And so, you know, a good example is how a lot of dramatic TV shows open with cold opens. They, Breaking Bad, did this probably better than any show ever. They would show like a charred stuffed animal smoking and floating in a pool with sirens blaring and smoke in the air and then they would show you the opening credits that's an open loop and you're having this march towards a thousand creates many open loops because you want to know what the next three will be and the next three and it has this one massive open loop which is if you figure it out as a listener wait a sec this isn't going to add up to a thousand what are we going to do for one thousand so i love that because it's it's very whether intentionally or not it created this irresistible open loop.
1: Well, you are being humble because not only did I remember you told me that, I try to do that and like literally chapter 37 of three books with Malcolm Gladwell, I say at the beginning of the intro, and maybe this is an abuse of the open loop, I don't know, I say I was super anxious and nervous when I interviewed him, which is true, but as soon as I pushed stop on the recorder, he said three simple words that calmed me down at the end of the show, I'll tell you what those three words are. <laughs> like, I literally I do that kind of stuff because I just want people to listen to the end. And then I tell them at the end, he said, and I'll tell you, he said, That was fun. Like, that was literally what he said. Like, as soon as I turned <laughs> off the recorder, I was nervous the whole thing. Then I was like, Why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? I would have chilled out, but I was so stressed. As soon as I turned it off, he was like, Well, that was fun. I was like, Oh, he smiled. But at the beginning, he like, wouldn't crack a face at all. Like, Oh, I was like, this wow. Guy, okay. it's, not, it's not going anywhere. Yeah,
0: I think it's only an abuse if the payoff isn't there. Like if if you truly won't believe what number seven in the list is, it, you won't believe right. If it'll blow you, if it actually blows your mind, you're fine with it. But it usually what happens is people are great at the opening of the loop and not great at the closing of it. But you're you're very audience conscious and earnest in your attempt to make something great here. That I have no doubt that when you use an open loop, I'm sure I'm sure it comes off great. And and while we're on the subject of open loops, I do want to create one right now. For listeners, because this is a show about shows, so we'll get meta. I'll admit that I'm doing it. Uh, What we're going to do when we play your three clips is we are going to talk about one theme that I see coming through, not only in your life, Neil, but now in your show, is your ability to build rapport and ensure that it's a a free-flowing, like you said, that kind of Howard Stern-ish effect where people kind of forget a mic is there and they just talk. And so many interviews end up like an interview, like a job interview. You know, It's almost like the subject is interviewing for the role of smart person or charming person for the listener. Like, hire me into your lives for the next 45 minutes because every answer, look how smart I am. And that's not what I get from your show at all. I get this very organic conversation. So we're going to talk in this episode about how that happens. There's an open loop for you. What do you think?
1: I love it. I'm curious to find <laughs> out.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to play some clips, by the way not just from people that I know you know prior to interviewing them. So I did find some clips where I think you were nervous heading in, like we mentioned that Malcolm Gladwell, and you had to build rapport meeting them for the first time under the auspices of we're interviewing you, which I think is, is more difficult sometimes than a friend. Um, you and I have rapport already, so I find this rather easy. So anyways, there's an open loop for you. Um, it's audio, but you and or the guest often describe where you're sitting. And it it really provides a nice sense of place and in a medium that is visual because you have to plant an image in someone's mind to understand what's happening. And you do such a nice job of that, Neil, of like describing we're sitting here to my left is this. I traveled down here from my home in Toronto. We're in Key West, Florida.
1: You know why I do that, Jay? Yeah. Because I, in the first few episodes of the Tim Ferriss show, which I loved, um, you'd hear like a siren going by or like a dog barking. And Tim would almost say apologetically, like, oh, sorry, I'm at, I'm at a park in, in San Francisco. And then I think he started using that real studio and lo- right. love him, love the show. But I was like, I missed it. I, I was like, damn, that was better when, when you could kind of picture the guy sitting in a park in San Francisco. So I've chosen to try to not just retain, but create unique aural experiences as best as possible through visualization. So when I met Tim Urban down in New York City, I... It was a bizarre, tightly cramped coffee shop with people talking beside us and techno music playing. I said, we're at a bizarre, cramped coffee shop with people beside us with techno music just so you could picture that too. And maybe it comes out in the voice and maybe it comes out in what we're saying a little bit.
0: You know, it's funny you mentioned Tim Urban and interviewing him in a New York coffee shop because that's the first clip I have for us. So let's get into the clips. And first, before we do, I have a very... In- I always play a transition sound to let people know we're going into and out of a clip compared to our voices. So I have a, I picked a strategic sound. I think I want to change it at all at all times and maybe I'll fit the theme of the guest. But here's the sound I picked for you.
1: Flipping paper in a book.
0: Yep. How about that? A little customized clip for you. I
1: love it.
0: So, clip number 1 comes from your episode with Tim Urban. Tim is the creator of the Unbelievable Blog. I'm such a fan of it. I read it all the time. Wait, but why? And it takes these deep, fundamental, philosophical looks at really big and complex topics. And he does it, best of all, in a really delicious way. It's very entertaining. He uses metaphors and stick figures, brilliant deconstructions, and he really helps anybody feel like they can understand these complex topics about human nature and science and society. And he has millions of subscribers and readers. He's got this TED Talk about procrastination, which is both hysterical And widely viewed. It's something like 30 million at the time that you spoke to him, Neil. And the guy is just one of the most creative and philosophical minds out there. And in fact, that's how you introduced him as a sort of modern philosopher at the top of your episode. And so just for people listening, in this clip, you're talking about this childlike curiosity that gets trained out of us as we get older. And we're going to cut right into you speaking partway into you saying to Tim, well, Tim, you've retained that curiosity. So let me play that clip for you. And then we'll chat after.
1: You've retained that in a sense that your work is full of curiosity. You've called yourself many times a very curious person. And and it's clear in your writing that, that you are very curious. Um, what do we do? I have little kids. Uh, how do I keep them curious? Uh, what can and was anything done to you as you grew up that kept you curious that way? Or do you see other people doing
2: that well as parents? Um, I think, um, the parents are very hands-off, which is, some. and I was also an only child till I was five. So I think that gives you a lot of time to just kind of. You are just. I like that phrase. Only child till I was five. I am going to start using that. I was an only child till I was two. My fiance is an actual only child, and she says it's like cultural appropriation to pretend to be an only child. She gets very mad at me, and she says, (laughs) "I am like." She says it's not all fair that I get to call myself that because it's not because it's not true. But anyway, (laughs) depends how long your ellipsis is in the middle of that sentence. Five years (laughs) is a lot. You are very formed by five. Um, And I, I think that like the key today. I think is first of all just awareness of this concept. Just thinking about this concept, reasoning from first principles versus reasoning by analogy, um, and just just getting that in your head and realizing that um, that the world is. This is a Steve Jobs kind of quote. He said something like, "The world, you know, you, you it's this epiphany you gonna have when you realize the world is only was that you see around you was built by people no smarter than you." So before
0: I reveal why I pulled out this clip, uh, which is, I guess, in and of itself, yet another open loop, but before I reveal that, this episode was from February 2019, and we're recording this in September 2019. So Neil, just give me your general first impressions of hearing your former, former self as a host there.
1: Uh, well, first of all, I should say that I love how you call them episodes, because of course they are. But on my podcast, Three Books, I always call them chapters chapter 22 with tim urban just to try to use some of what you taught me to like brand it as with the theme you're using the the page turning sound i'm using like i'm re, i'm renaming episodes completely into chapters
0: love it i love um that.
1: yeah just a small thing when, when i hear it i'm 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 delighted you picked that because i did think that was just so funny that he said the phrase i was an only child till i was five like that was you just never hear anyone describe <laughs> them as an only child if they have if they indeed have siblings which he does um but i love that he was like really paying attention to that and when i yeah. listen to that the thing i remember of course is honestly man we were in we were in soho in manhattan in a coffee shop in the middle of the day it was a tight coffee shop full of people there was a woman speaking like spanish on her cell phone beside me the entire time blaring like full t- in my ear and the guy beside tim urban recognized him and knew him and was like kind of not eavesdropping, but like, he was kind of like a Tim Urban fan boy and like, was like, kind of like watching the podcast, like in real time, like a fan, like an audience. And so it was like a really weird atmosphere And when, (laughs) when I listened to that part of the benefit for me as the host of doing them live is I get to relive the actual physical experience. Which, is, which was just beautiful to do that. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: That's sure. And that's one of the reasons I did want to pull it is it's in a coffee shop, which goes back to why I told the story of you with the apples is, you know, you can't get embarrassed and be self-conscious when you're doing these things live and, and not choosing an office or a studio because you got to waltz into a coffee shop and have the gumption to just plop down, set up your microphones, do an interview while people were watching and doing their thing, and maybe they're not watching, and so they're being a little ignorant that they should be quiet. And They don't care, right? It's their coffee shop, their day, and so you know that takes some gumption. It takes this ability to just say, "I'm going to roll with this." And I always, always admired that about you, Neil. But the you know the second thing I wanted to bring up about this clip was such a delightful thing other interviewers can learn from, which is. When, you, when Tim says, I was an only child until I was five, and you said, I like how you phrased that, and then you repeated the phrase, that's such a great hosting technique because whether you did it as a technique or it just came naturally, either way, I think it's a skill that you learn, you essentially played the role there as a guide. You were like allowing your listeners not to miss something that you, the guide, wanted them to Clearly see, which is that phrase is so interesting. It's it's something called signposting, which is when when you make a show, you put up a verbal sign where it either says, "Okay, something is coming, don't miss this, pay attention to this detail," or you reflect back and be like, "Did you get that? That was super important." So you put up a sign that you plant in someone's mind as like it was interesting or important. So I love that you did that. You just kind of jumped in, planted a little little signpost, and yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I did want to call that out.
1: I I I don't I don't think it was conscious. At all, but but I did want to reflect back to you that it like I'm I'm just trying to focus on him. So if he says something that that I I resonate with, then rather than think what would the listener want to focus on, I, I was sort of thinking like I want to focus. You know, it's sort of selfishly I wanted to focus on that. So I just called it out for that reason. The other thing I wanted to just say about having the gumption to be in a live environment that could go any which way, like a coffee shop in New York, is I used to think at the beginning of three books that. I should. I should call the coffee shop. I should ask them for permission. I should see if like they could carve a corner out, maybe save me a seat. Like, and I literally, I think back in February of 2019, I like I may have actually done that. I don't think if I did that. I can't. I, don't, I can't recall if I did that or not. But nowadays, I've decided that it's better radio, or it's a better podcast experience. Really, if I get kicked out. Like I almost want there to be some some tension or friction. Like if a manager walks over in the middle of us recording and says to us, "Excuse me, you guys can't do that in here." Well, we will hear that on the recording, won't we? And and then if he's like, "Go outside, like get out of here," so we'll hear that. So then then I'm I, I say, "Okay," and then I we walk out to the side. I press record again or keep it recording, and then I'm on the street. I did that in the David Sedaris episode. Uh, sorry, the David Sedaris chapter where we went. Like I paused it. We went to the green room. I came back. I asked if we could have more time. You can hear the publisher say you can have a few more minutes. I go with him a bit further. And when I when I did the editing for that chapter, I then interject and said, Okay, this is where I asked David Harris if I could go with him as he was the green room. He said, Yes, yeah, so let's go there now. And like another way of signposting, I guess, is that I'm letting the um, setting dictate itself based on what happens, and then I can use signposting and editing to then Guide the listener to what actually happened at the time later. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. The, the last thing to tease out there is like you said, you're so focused on Tim and also what lights you up authentically, and you're just focused on that. And that, that creates this like really nice, rich experience. It also builds rapport. You know, Tim is somebody who, you know, I interviewed him for my show. I'm somebody who I'm long winded. Tim is certainly long winded. He can meander, he has that kind of that brain—it's almost like if you tried to picture it, it's like a detective board full of string and different photos and totally. nodes, right? Because he jumps around a lot, but it's all connected to that's him. How it,
1: that's how those blockbusters oh, are. Yeah,
0: it, it's all connected to him. But to you, especially hearing him speak it instead of reading it, it can be tough to, to track sometimes. And and as a host, you know, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's tough because you want to jump in. And his answers are dense and they, they jump around, so it could be—I think it could be hard to get somebody like that just to just to be and chat. And, and sort of slow down, but you jumped in and you created this really warm moment that helped further relax both him and the listener and makes him more mindful, helps you focus on something that lights you up. So you're more mindful. And, and then, you know, then he proceeded with the answer. So I just love that because we, I think we're too hesitant to jump in sometimes and say, Hey, I actually authentically really like that. Let me, let me talk about that a little bit with you, or, you know, it's not, I'm interrupting. Whoa, stop, Neil. I want to ask you this question. Or, hey, you're not answering my question. It's just what a person would do. You're like, oh, I really like that. And then they're like, yeah, really? Yeah, me too. And then you start to be friends a little bit.
1: Totally. And we have become deeper friends since that conversation, I think, because of the conversation. But the other thing, person I wanted to mention here is Pete Holmes. You know, he hosts a really popular podcast called You Made It Weird. He's a really famous comedian, and his podcast is incredible. And one thing you'll notice if you listen to that show is he interrupts and interjects incessantly. Okay, I never plan to use I three times in a row there, but he interrupts and interjects incessantly. And so, well, hold on, hold on.
0: Let me let me interrupt there, Neil. You use alliteration in every one of your titles for your chapters, by the way. So don't (laughs) say you don't intend to be alliterative. Every one of your chapter titles, people listening should go check out three books. Every one of the episodes is so... Awesome, just to read the title because you are so great at alliteration. It's amazing. So don't. I don't always allow it.
1: alliteration. I always allow. Oh alliteration, come yeah. on. Um, <laughs> so so here's what I was gonna say is, um, and you don't want to know how long it takes me to come up with these chapter titles. I spent way too much time on my iPhone playing with the words. But anyway, I um, oh, Pete Holmes. So what I was gonna say is, you also, if you want to, like as you said, be human, just interrupt naturally. You know all that stuff. Just be okay with the haters. Like if you read the review, and the, the here's the proof in the pudding. Pete Holmes, you know, like 3000 4000 uh, you know reviews on iTunes, like a very very popular podcast, you know, huge listenership, etc. If you read the reviews, four out of five reviews, four out of every five loves the show, one out of every five, which is a very very high percentage. One out of every five. High. Is like one star saying cannot listen, the guy interrupts too much. So I'm saying he's got a very high percentage of people all hating on the one exact thing over and over again. Does it make him change? No. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, when you are yourself, you just got to be okay with the fact that it's just you're not going to be everyone's taste. Rather than go for the lowest common denominator, just find your tribe.
0: I love that. Today's episode is brought to you by Casted. Casted also believes what we believe, that we should put our shows at the center of our marketing strategies. But to get there, It's time marketers have software actually built for them when they run shows. In trying to make podcasts work for your brand, you can't just stitch together systems and processes and data, really using tools for media or hobbyist podcasters. We need things tailored to us. So if you're a B2B marketer, Casted is building tools specifically for your work. Things like transcribe, index, and break down your shows into findable, shareable clips. Things like measure beyond vanity metrics so you can look at engagement and attribution. And things like equip your sales team with content that you actually access from this invisible medium of audio. Sales isn't going to pour through 30 minutes or 45 minutes at a time to find the one clip. So if we want to equip our sales teams to nurture relationships, or even just our marketing teammates with endless content efficiencies across channels, Casted is building tools for those purposes. Uh, This is completely off script here. I spent probably a year... Before launching marketing showrunners looking not only at the trend of marketers launching shows but technologies that are being built for this movement and there are several in video but there's really nothing in podcasting I was shocked so when I finally came across Casted I was like this is amazing we're actually getting tools built for us not for hobbyists not for the media built for marketers learn more about Casted go to casted.us let's go to the next clip so This next clip is from your episode with, and I was so excited when you said you were doing this, because it's with the legendary Judy Bloom. So she's won over 90 awards for her writing, which I learned from your show, 90 awards, unsurprisingly. She's sold actually almost as many millions of her books, 85 million. Uh, She's written things like, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret which is from 1970, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing from 72. In 73, she followed that up with Dini. Blubber was 74. It goes on and on. Amazing, mm-hmm. legendary author. So uh, a lot we could talk about here. But first, let's go to your clip with the, the one and only Judith Sussman, a.k.a. Judy Bloom.
1: Well, I, uh, I, I really appreciate you welcoming me down here. And I've brought with me thank you. And this thank you is my old tattered copy of Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I was in a group chat last night uh, with my mom, my dad, and my sister telling them how excited I was to chat with you. And it spawned, I can show you this after the chat, I spawned a huge conversation in the text of my mom, my dad, and my sister telling all of their memories of me walking around the kitchen, (laughs) reading this book, pretending to be fudge, saying, pita, pita, no, no, all the lines. And my mom says, she says, this is where you found your voice, Neil. And now today, I'm 38, I'm interviewing you with my voice on this, the only show in the world by and for book lovers, writers, makers, sellers, and librarians, three books. And I, so I want to say thank you, because I wouldn't be doing this if, if it wasn't for this book when I was a child. So well, I'm
0: very you. glad that it was special for you. Thank you. Thank you. This was at uh, 4.20, so it's pretty early in the episode. Tell me why you did that. Why did you create that moment?
1: Well, it was really interesting, Jay. So this is chapter four, as you said. like It's one of the very first chapters I did of three books. And um, her body language, as I launched into that, dropped completely. She actually was not interested in hearing praise about herself. I think that she gets a lot of that all day, every day. And it was like, I saw her body language and her face default into like, I'm supposed to smile mode. And then even her answer, which you heard, was like, um, I'm so glad it was special for you. And then if you I think kept playing it, sometime in the next minute or two, she says, I thought we were here to talk about my books. It was actually a little bit sassy. She's eighty. You know, she can be definitely sass me around, but she's like, Are wait, wait a minute? Are we here to talk about my books? Not your rat ranting on your books. So I was like, actually I did it. I don't know if it worked, but I did it because I wanted to all my guests on my show aren't people on PR tour doing the publicity circuit pitching there but zero a hundred percent of my guests are people and I even say on my website I do not accept pitches my, my show does not accept you asking to be on it bravo it's only people that I have reached out to period that's it that's the only awesome. thing awesome. right so I therefore I have an opportunity in the beginning of the show before we record or right we start start recording to tell them why I've, read, I've been re- tim I've been reading your blog for years I love wait but why thanks so much for coming on judy I loved your book when I was a kid that's why I reached out to you thanks for coming on all I'm trying to do is just make sure they know that this is like I'm not I'm not like a CNN interviewer getting paid to interview I'm I'm like actually a genuine fan of their work or their of the, or them somehow and I just want to make sure they know that because what I'm trying to do is like constantly increase trust between us so that the conversation can be more vulnerable, deeper, more authentic. And part of the way I do that is to tell them authentically why I'm there. And that begins with me authentically having them on the show for an authentic reason. That's all.
0: I've talked to some hosts that they talk about guests that are not, that they're not on their level and sort of like they feel intimidated and they've tried to find ways to get on their level. I, for example, I talked to somebody who interviewed an NBA player, and he's like, this guy is super famous. He's in the media all the time. I am not. I'm a podcast host. It's great. Actually, I think you know this guy. His name is Ryan Hawk.
1: Yeah, he's a, he's, a great, he's a great podcaster.
0: Great podcaster. He's got the Learning Leader Show. And so he talked to me about how he tries to find ways to sort of just humanize it a little bit. Where it's not you're this celebrity, I'm the interviewer. It's we're two people chatting. And so I, I really respected the fact that you did that because it's what you authentically wanted to do. So you should.
1: I stole another idea from Ryan Hawk, by the way. Oh, what's that? After I, after I went on the Learning Leader podcast or Learning Leader show, like a week later in the mail, I got like a thank you card handwritten by him and I believe a t-shirt, like the Learning Leader t-shirt. And I was like, wow, that's the first podcast where I, as a guest, received a present for coming on. So, now I mail all my guests' presents after <laughs> after they come on my show. So, like I mail Judy Bloom, like my favorite chocolate chip cookies, for example.
0: I've, now, uh, now, I feel so bad that I don't do that. <laughs> well,
1: I'll, I'll be expecting uh, some really fun. Yep. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right. But I just stole that idea from Ryan Hawk. And the purpose of it was not to uh, do anything other than say, like, you know what? Like, they're giving me their time, their yeah. IP, their, you know, all that stuff. I don't put ads on it. I could, but I don't. And it's like, it's just, it's a gracious thing for someone to give you an hour. You know what I mean? And record it. So I just, I, I stole that idea from Ryan straight up.
0: Judy probably gets bombarded with, interview a quest certainly you said she gets bombarded with praise so how did you get to interview her especially because this was so early in your run i, I believe you actually recorded this before you launched the show so you didn't even have that you know i'm sure you had some great guests that you could cite to her but you couldn't share with her an episode or maybe you did behind the scenes that says look this is how it sounds it's different it's awesome it's a prestige vehicle also we have all these downloads and people like you have no proof yet so how did this actually come together
1: do you want to read my cold pitch email yes yes Okay. Okay, here it is, and I have not read this uh, since I sent it, so I have no idea how embarrassing this is going to be. So the first question you're probably wondering is, how did I get her email? And I think what I usually do is I go to their website and I guess it. So her website is judybloom.com, so I like guess what the iteration might be before that. You know what I mean? Like her domain. So I said, Hey Judy, my mom says imitating fudge and tales of a fourth grade nothing was my first artistic performance as a child. I would read it to my sister in the bathtub and still have my torn and I still have my torn and tattered copy. Today I'm the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including The Book of Awesome, which has sold over a million copies. And my artistic performances, all inspired by fudge, include a couple of TED talks and over fifty speeches a year. The reason I'm writing you and know is because I host a new podcast called Three Books, where in each episode, I hadn't called them chapters yet, I uncover and discuss the three most formative books of an inspiring individual. It's the only podcast in the world for, by and for book writers, makers, sellers, lovers, and librarians. Would you be willing to be a guest? I am happy to come to you and do it entirely around your schedule. It would honestly be a huge dream to meet you and talk about which books shaped you. Sample guests include Seth Godin, Gretchen Rubin, Tim Urban, dot, 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 and hopefully you! Exclamation mark. Thanks for considering it, Neil. P.S., are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, was the f- most formative book of my last guest, dot, 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 who owns five copies, including a framed and signed original dust jacket, exclamation mark. I heard back from her team, not her specifically, but her assistant within six days, Um, saying, Hi, Neil, thanks so much for your warm email to Judy. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, but I must send Judy's regrets. She's the driving force behind this, and she can't do it. Okay, so I got a rejection, actually, Jay, to answer you. And then I, um, you know, she's opening her new bookstore in Key West, Florida, and she works there 24-7. Due to her new career, she hasn't been making any future commitments. The bookshop takes every minute in the day. Thanks again for thinking of Judy, okay? Then I reply. (laughs) So this is, I think, where most people would stop, right? You just asked, and then you got rejected. You're done. You're out. Like, they just said no. They didn't just give you a no reply, which, by the way, is the most common no. The most common no I get is no reply, right? Gretchen Rubin has a famous phrase that's, um, uh, yes comes right away, no never comes. You know, I love that phrase. It's so true. But in this case, I actually got a response, and it's no. So then I write back, hey, I completely and totally understand. And I have a crazy idea that may help her book, you know, her bookstore in QS as well. On April 3rd, I am doing two interviews. Um with Dave Barry, another inspiration as a grown-up, and then your fellow book owner, the amazing Mitchell Kaplan. So like Mitch, Mitchell Kaplan, I, I did the research and know he owns the bookstore chain that she owns a bookstore in. So it's like I'm interviewing him at Coral Gables, which is outside of Miami, on this date. On April 4th, I'm giving a speech in the morning to Volvo, and I put in brackets, they're paying for my trip. I'm trying to tell her that like I'm not going out of my way here. So like I'm getting paid for travel, and I don't fly home to Toronto until late that night. I looked at flights, and I can actually get to Key West around 1 p.m., and I do not need to leave Key West until 7 p.m. So are you ready for my crazy idea? May I interview Judy in the Books and Book store, her store, on April 4th, anytime between 2 and 5 p.m.? As you know, it would be a huge dream for me. Da, da, da. Um, if, any, if my excitement has caused me to overstep or impose, I will humbly apologize and take a step back. It would not be the first time. I get excited a lot. Please know this all comes from a very earnest and honest place. Thank you so much for considering it and by the way, Judy's assistant responded four days later, four days where I heard nothing and figured it was over, and she said, Hi, Neil. Sometimes the crazy ideas will work out. Judy can do your interview with you next Wednesday, April 4th, pending your flying arrangements, but she must leave the store by 3.30 p.m. due to previous commandments. Please confirm. Boom, boom, boom. So, heck yeah, I booked a flight from Miami to Key West and back within hours of each other, flew down there, you know, went from there to the store. I knew I had 20 minutes with her. I think she let me go half an hour, and took off, and then then it's always easier to get more guests when you have a guest to tell you that you had on.
0: All right, let's go to the the third and final clip. Quick story. The first time we met in the real world, I was speaking in Toronto and we'd had that uh, interaction on my show and I reached out and said, hey, I'll be in town. And in our time spent together, which I remember fondly, I, I learned something about you that I think maybe is serving you well on your show. We went to brunch at this awesome place in Toronto where you live and Yeah, um, Bar Raval. Yep, and and we walked around the city and talked for a while and talked about our craft of speaking and talked about writing and your career and mine, etc. You were very helpful giving advice. And then we saw a grocery store.
1: I have no memory I have no memory of this.
0: Interesting. <laughs> so- these are both These are both open loops by the way. And how how, mon- how mundane can a great open loop be? Then we saw a grocery store. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Right now, listeners are like, what the hell? Who cares? Why why is this interesting? Tell me more. So, anyways, we saw a grocery store. You went in, you're like, I'm gonna buy some apples. Jay, you ever have this type of apple? I had no idea what you're talking about. You you walk, you walk in, you buy this bag of apples, and we walk out and we're just chatting, and like you, you there's some people on the street and you're like offering one here and there apples. You're just like, Hey, you want an apple? And I was like, Wow, like this is a guy who doesn't seem to get embarrassed when he interacts with other people. Like you just put yourself out there it seems and and happily and in a friendly fashion in a way that doesn't put people off you just put yourself out there you don't seem very embarrassed and i feel i feel like that's so useful when you create the kind of show that that you have which is you're doing it in person so you don't know what they're going to be like face to face you don't know what environment you're going to find yourself in you just kind of have to go with it and stay true to your friendly self and i remember the last moment where we parted ways in toronto you called i think your book publisher maybe And you're like, hey, I'm outside your office. I just bought some apples. You want some? Let me come up and chat.
1: (laughs) It totally sounds like me. I can totally believe I would do it because I do that kind of stuff a lot. But I have no memory of doing that (laughs) with you. But you're right. I do that all the time. If I buy, when I buy chocolate, I always, my goal is always to get rid of the whole bar because otherwise I'll eat it all. So I'm like, you want a chocolate? Want a piece of chocolate? I always ask people that want stuff.
0: So for the final clip, I was looking for an episode where you had to remix the format where you either had to or you tried to, just to change things up, keep it refreshing for you and for your listener. And one really easy way to do that is I just looked at the title of the episodes as a starting point, because usually you start with the name of the person, and then you say something alliterative, which is awesome. And we talked about that briefly. And then I found this one episode that just said, a number one ranked bartender on fiddling with frankincense and fighting for freedom. And then I realized this is the bartender behind the place that you and I first met, Bar Raval, which you know, I didn't realize until this episode, but I didn't know it was run by somebody so prestigious and known and successful, the number one rated bar in Canada in 2018.
1: I I wouldn't take you anywhere worse.
0: (laughs) Red carpet treatment. I love it. Describe the interior of that place because you are so good at describing things on your show. And it's, it's also just stunning with all that wood. It's really different. So can you just describe it to people that have never been?
1: Well, although I'm not a big-name restaurateur or chef, as I understand, when you become one, you get a lot of rich people coming over and saying, I can give you a bunch of money, and I'll open you a nice restaurant. And so people do that. And so they put like – they sunk either, either half a million or a million, I think that's gotten inflated with, with the word on the street, into this, into this interior of this bar. So they paid a lot of money. It had to be mahogany. It was only mahogany wood. And they got a special machine to carve it, I think, around – To look like Gaudi, you know, so Gaudi, the sort of famous um, Spanish architect, Gaudi-esque curved wood, heavily etched interior that feels like you're in something like the Ewok village crossed with, you know, one of those like old IMAX movies where you're like fly into someone's body and like zoom into all their blood cells and their muscles. So you're like in like an Ewok village built out of wooden muscles.
0: Right, it's like <laughs> sweeping arches with like a yeah. kind of pillar once in a while. Like that's the muscley feel to it. It's like
1: sinewy. No chairs. No chairs in the whole thing. You have to stand up. It's tapas. It's meant to be interactive. Right.
0: Right. So okay. So the owner and the bartender. His name is Robin Goodfellow, and he partly owns a bunch of places in Toronto. He's been a bartender for sixteen years, and perhaps somewhat atypically for the show, I actually want to play not your interaction with him, but the story that you open the episode with about him because it kind of contradicts a lot of the rapport building stuff that we're usually going to try in the working world or on a show. So it kind of runs counter to the convention, which is why I want to bring it up. So just to tee up the story, you and a friend had walked into the bar and it was your first time there. And the bartender turns out it was him said, what do you want? And you said, I don't know. What do you have? Do you have a drink menu? And he said, no. What do you want? And you
1: said, well, what do you have? He's like, no what do you want and I'm like kind of a bit stunned you know I'm with, I'm with my friend and and uh I, I'm like I'm t- hoping, I'm trying to order a drink and he's just like not letting me and so I'm just like I, I don't know I don't want something sweet you know I don't want something sweet and he kind of does this like slow 360 degree kind of swivel where he slowly turns behind them stares at this gigantic wall full of glass bottles, tinctures potions all these colorful liquids then swivels back to me stares me right in the eye and with like this this sort of tongue-in-cheek but like this ferocious intensity he's like does it look like a fucking sweet place to you and i'm, I'm taking a back i mean this guy's swearing at me i mean i'm just not trying to get a drink you know what i mean i'm like i don't i don't know how to, what are you what are you telling me sir i'm like tell me what i just want to drink how do i get a drink he's like you tell me what you want and i was like well i don't know what you have he's like tell me what you want. There's no such thing as a sweet drink. Every single drink in this whole menu is, is balanced. It's this way, is that way. You know, it, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just like, you can't just say not sweet. You have to tell me what you want, what you feel like, what you want to, what kind of night you want to have. How did that story end? Because clearly
0: you're not necessarily loving that experience. And then you tell him, all right, I'm thinking about these traits. So how did this story end up?
1: Yeah, he like swore at me. He was like he was like, you know, I, I finally like, you know, gave in to this idea that this guy like wanted like to force me to like order by I guess adjective. Like he wanted me to order by mood. Like I didn't I don't know how to use your menu, sir. Like I don't know how to order here. And he's like, tell me what you want. So I was like, okay, man. I just like threw it down. I was like, okay. Um, I want something that makes me feel optimistic. I want to be refreshed. I want to have energy. I want to have a little pep. And I like, went on this like little rant about how I want to feel. And he said, that's what no one fucking does. <laughs> and what everyone should do. And he like swore at me. And, and I was like, whoa. But he then proceeded to create a drink that I'm not joking. And people don't believe me when I say this. Actually, literally tasted like every adjective I just articulated.
0: I, well, that yeah. Again, the reason I wanted to play this was... It sounds so off-putting. Like we talked about make them feel welcome and warm and human. And we have all these like uplifting things we've talked about today. And and this guy did the opposite of all that. And you loved him so much that you invited me to that place immediately when I said I was gonna be there. You go there a lot, I'm assuming. You invited him onto your show. So now you're publicly associated with the guy. So clearly, there's not just one way to build rapport. Like, what is it about that challenger style that? You kind of respect it.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, him and I have talked about this a number of times since. He insists that he wasn't as strong as I make it out to be. But when I tell it to other people, they're like, yeah, that nah, that kind of that could be him. Um, and he says to me a couple things. One, he said, I would not have challenged you if it didn't seem to me that you wanted to be challenged. Part of what they're doing at Bar of Al and why this bar is so successful is that they are curating an experience for you. If you come in with a bunch of people and you want to have a loud night with no interruption, the waiter will be or the server will be extremely like, Demure and like, you know, you really won't see them. If you're like coming solo instead of the bar and you like see them all antsy and you're trying to work something through, they'll chat you up and like get it out of you. Like they, they curate an experience. And so he was curating for me an experience I wanted, which was he could sense in me that I wanted to go. I wanted to be challenged. And I like being mentally punched in the face. Like I, I say that a lot, but I like, I like when someone says to me, Neil, You're thinking about this all the wrong way. Here's exactly how you should be thinking about. And they lay it out there in a thoughtful and intelligent way. I love that, Jay, because unfortunately, and you know this, one thing that happens is you have even like a modicum, if I'm saying that word correctly, and I don't know if I'm right, I am, even a tiny amount of success is suddenly you're living you are living in an echo chamber where such a vastly, like I went through elementary school where 50% of the feedback I got was positive, 50% was negative. I lived at home where 50% positive, 50% negative. And suddenly after my blog got popular, my book got popular, I'm like living in a world where 99.9% of the feedback is positive. And so if I don't source out and create and try to find challenging people to challenge me strongly, then I won't get that and I won't grow and improve like from feedback. So Whenever someone really steps to me and like really like as I call it, intellectually punches me in the face, like really really says you're doing this all wrong, I love that.
0: You had this initial stab. This is your first podcast, and it's come along so nicely, and you have such joy when you do it, I can tell. I, I certainly love listening to it. I hope it continues to help you with your creative endeavors, your fulfillment, moving books and speeches, whatever goals you have for it. But I'm along the idea of improvement. What's one thing that you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself when you started? And what's one thing that looking forward you want to try to get better at?
1: Well, you know, you and I both have all talked a lot that it's important to pitch your or attach yourself to one word. So like my website's called 1000 awesome things. My book my first book's called The Book of Awesome. My new book is called You Are Awesome, right? It's all about resilience. But here I have a podcast that has no mention of that word. And so I just think it's it's harder for people to know that it's me or associate it with me. And that's fine. But I think it would have been easier to gain footing and to gain fans if people were like, when they're scrolling through whatever it is, Stitcher or whatever they're looking through, to be like, oh, it's that guy. So the world is just too busy and too loud and too frenetic to not be anything but you know, your simple and most two-dimensional and brand itself, unfortunately. And the opposite of that is that, That flattens you as a person and it not dehumanizes you, but it makes you overly simple. So I wanted to be something different. At the same time, I wrestle with that because I just know if I'd called it like awesome podcast or the awesome books, like I would have had way and I had the logo and I just, I know I could have launched it way easier. I've put myself through a lot of hard work and maybe it would be way bigger if I had just used like the brand that I'm already known for.
0: If you look at your performance as a host, what's something that if you just made one simple thing, you'd be a little bit happier with your performance over the next 20 plus episodes?
1: Almost everything, Jay, comes down for me to preparation. Um, So uh, instead of putting 40 hours in to prepare for a conversation, I wish I put 50 or I wish I put 60 because I'll stumble upon something and I'll be like, I wonder if they're thinking this or if they already know this and I won't know the answer. And so I just read Howard Stern's book, um, Howard Stern Comes Again, which I highly recommend. It's essentially just a summary of his two dozen best interview transcripts in the last 40 years. That's all the book is. And it's fascinating to read because you also hear how he prepares for it, and he puts like forty hours of work in, and keeps things on his bedside table. And I do the same thing. So before every podcast I do, I spend essentially an entire day wandering around, untethered, thinking about the person, having read all their stuff, their three books. I think about what I could ask them or where the conversation could go. I try to vision where I could take it. So. I'm putting a lot of time in, but if I could do more, that'd be a lot better. If I had a research team, if I had a research assistant, if I had like, you know, if I had a Howard Stern-like industrial complex where like people could be feeding me, like I'm, I'm putting myself through the meat grinder of preparation for myself. But I, I wish I was way better prepared before the interviews.
0: Neil, I think you're you're driven, you're generous, you're you're creative, you think differently about this stuff, and it's it's a pleasure to not only understand your show better, but to also. Know that you're out there in this small but growing community of people running these shows. That uh, it's it's good to know that you're you're trying to pave new paths. So thanks for doing this.
1: You created this. Uh, this show wouldn't be what it is without you. You have consulted on it with me. You have I've run it by you for like the years leading up to it and you are the master when it comes to creating beautiful art. So thank you for all your wisdom and for helping me create this this uh, podcast.
0: I so appreciate it. I'm happy that my $20 bribe for you to say at the very end worked. So thanks for <laughs> staying. <laughs> <laughs> That's Neil Pasricha, best-selling author of The Book of Awesome, The Happiness Equation, and his new book, You Are Awesome. And he's the host of three books. Thank you to Casted, our presenting sponsor. Casted.us is their website. Remember, they're the only tool set right now being built explicitly for marketers who are making podcasts. And the whole goal is to make sure that it becomes central and actually effective in doing so for your brand. So visit Casted.us to learn more about them and, you know, maybe tell them that we sent you. So the more love we can show them, the better. We can keep creating content that serves you. Oh, and speaking of. At Marketing Showrunners, we publish a lot of content to help marketers make better podcasts and video shows, but the best place to get the best of it all, and one big idea found nowhere else, is MSR Monthly. That's MSR's free monthly newsletter, and I know what you're saying, and yes, we're like super good at naming stuff. MSR Monthly is our monthly (laughs) newsletter, and so you can subscribe for free using the link in the show notes, or go to marketingshowrunners.com slash subscribe. You'll join subscribers from Adobe, Salesforce, MailChimp, the BBC, Amazon Prime, LinkedIn, Red Bull, and thousands more. Subscribe at marketingshowrunners.com slash subscribe or via the link in the show notes. I'm Jay Akunzo, and the entirety of MSR's existence is built on one belief that I hope you share. Great marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. Thanks for staying with me. And we'll be back next Monday morning for the next episode of Three Clips. See ya.